This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, February the 3rd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, it's the weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Today, we'll discuss the controversy brewing over Canada's first special representative for combating Islamophobia. It's trying to court Green Party leader Mike Schreiner into their mix. Political leaders as mercenaries. That'll be a fun chat. And we explore the Federal Drug Administration's push for regulation of cannabis-infused health products in the United States, i.e. CBD regulation. Would you believe that today is the third anniversary of Now with Dave Brown? Very humbly, on February 3rd of 2020, this show hit the airwaves on a Monday morning, the day after the Super Bowl, with your boy having lived out of a hotel for almost a week and not fully moved into his apartment yet. A little bit of chaos around that time, and I thought after a week or two, the chaos would go away, and then uh, a global pandemic struck. What a wild three years it's been. Thank you for being a part of it for this time. No matter when you hopped on board, we always appreciate your feedback, and we always appreciate you joining in to be a piece of the show. And a big thank you to all the people who've worked behind the scenes past and present, for the last three years to make the show a reality. It is no small task, and they have to deal with Diva Brown every day. Let's begin the show like we always do, with the top story of the day. Finance Minister Christian Freeland is hosting an in-person meeting with the provincial and territorial finance ministers in Toronto. Lori Paris sets the table. The Bank of Canada raised its key rate again last week, bringing it to 4.5%, but signaled it's taking a pause to let the impact of its aggressive hiking cycle sink in. The economy is showing signs of slowing, but inflation is still high at 6.3% in December, with food prices in particular remaining elevated year over year. Interest rates have put a damper on the housing market, sending prices and sales downward for months on end, even as the cost of renting went up in 2022. Meanwhile, the labour market has remained strong, with the unemployment rate nearing record lows in December at 5%. Lori Paris, The Canadian Press. After hearing that report, I encourage you to go back to Wednesday's podcast and listen to the conversation that Kevin Shaw and I had about the way the media covers the economy. Staying in the world of Canadian politics, the Senate has passed the Online Streaming Act. Bill C-11 is being sent back to the House with a dozen amendments following a lengthy study by senators. Canadian press reporter Emily Javesky has more. The bill would update Canada's broadcasting rules to reflect online streaming giants such as YouTube, Netflix and Spotify and require them to contribute to Canadian content and make it accessible to users in Canada or face steep penalties. Senators made amendments intended to protect user-generated content and highlight the promotion of Indigenous languages and Black content creators. Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez says he hopes the House of Commons will pass the bill next week after review. Staying in the world of economy, the European Central Bank has hiked its interest rates by half another half point and vows a similar hike at its next meeting. Karen Chamis has the details. 
The ECB pushed ahead with its drive to subdue inflation by raising its key benchmarks by half a percentage point. At a news conference in Frankfurt, ECB President Christine Lagarde said a further rate hike will come in March. Now you will say, well, yes, but what about after March? Does that mean that you have reached the pinnacle or the peak? No. No, no, no. We know that we have ground to cover. We know that we are not done. Whilst the US Federal Reserve has eased its pace of increases, the Bank of England sought to tame double-digit inflation. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said although inflation has eased recently, it's too soon to be complacent. And we need to be absolutely sure that we really are turning the corner on inflation. And that's why we've increased bank rate today. I'm Karen Chamas. Switching from economy to climate, an international marine protection conference will open tomorrow in Vancouver. It's the first major climate meeting since world leaders agreed to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030 at a conference in Montreal late last year. Federal politicians are expected to make an announcement on ocean protection at this conference. Fisheries and Oceans Minister Joyce Murray and Environmental Minister Stephen Guibo will be among thousands of delegates from 123 countries. And one more climate story for you. Mexico has made a large investment in solar energy. Officials say the war in Ukraine prompted the decision. Charles de Ledesma takes a closer look. Mexican Foreign Affairs Secretary Marcelo Ebrard made the comments after taking dozens of foreign diplomats to see a massive new solar energy project near the U.S. border. He explained the decisions made by the U.S. and Mexico in the past year to invest heavily in renewables didn't appear so near before the war. In April, Mexico plans to power up the first phase of a huge solar energy project near the beach town Puerto Ponasco, popular with tourists making the short drive from the US. Once completed, the full $1.6 billion project will have a generating capacity of 1,000 megawatts, enough to power some 500,000 homes. I'm Charles Diladesma. That leads us into the Daily Polls at Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find the show on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked, how would you feel about significantly changing who or what appears on Canadian currency? 52% of you said good, 3% of you said bad, and 45% of you said I don't care. A lot of you are probably in the same camp as James who tweets in at Accessible Media, I don't care since I don't carry cash much anymore. <laughs> Today's daily poll needs to be set up with a news story. A Michigan man was struck with $1,000 worth of charges after his six-year-old son started ordering a whole mess of food online. Ben Thomas has the story. Keith Stonehouse says the food piled up quickly at his Detroit-area home Saturday night after he let his son Mason use his cell phone to play a game before bed. The six-year-old instead found his way onto his father's Grubhub account. Mason ordered jumbo shrimp, salads, shawarma, and chicken pita sandwiches, chili cheese fries, and more. Keith caught on when one Grubhub driver after another started showing up. Wife and mother Kristen Stonehouse had gone to the movies for the evening, but she tells the AP Grubhub has reached out and offered the family a $1,000 gift card and is considering using the family in a promotional campaign. I'm Ben Thomas. Oh, that kid knows how to live. A child after my own heart. Chili cheese fries and chicken pitas and shawarma and jumbo shrimp. Oh, it's good living. Also, kind of looking ahead to my Friday nights. Today's Daily Poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Has online shopping made it too easy to spend money? 
and beyond the yes or no question, what techniques do you use to limit your spending online? So it's a yes or no question, but I'm curious if you have any safeguards you put in place for either yourself or the people in your family to make sure that old visa is not getting rung up over and over again on the daily. I uh, find that it is pretty easy to spend money online. I love me the food delivery apps. That's a uh, way that I indulge it. Anybody who uh, watches the show on the daily or spends any time with me and uh, one of our technical producers, Daniel Penamondo, would definitely tell you that uh, I love pumping up my credit cards to order some food to my house. So it's pretty easy. I don't know if it's too easy, but it's made it pretty darn easy to spend money online. So I'm going to vote yes on this. Mike Ross, you're filling in for Alex Smythe, who is on location today at uh, the Parasport Games. So, Mike, has it is it too easy to spend money online? I think generally finances overall can have kind of become a little too easy and money a little too accessible. Um, example of that, Dave, is a story that came out just a couple of days ago where a senior citizen was built out of $10,000. So she, she withdrew $10,000 from her account on some uh, scam. She was a victim of a scam. And now the family is saying, hey, well, wait a minute, you know, why are there, why weren't there protections there from the bank? And, you know, a lot of people were piling on on this person, you know, and as, as I'm sure people are going to pile on this family and say, well, where were you? Like, where were you? And what's your responsibility in this? And I just thought to myself, you know, if I deposit $10,000 in the bank, it sits on hold for at least a week, at least a week. And, and the bank's very careful about what I put into my account, but they don't seem to really be that attentive as to what's coming out of our accounts. So they're I think there's a little bit- They're supposed to, they're supposed to be daily withdrawal limits. Well, they're supposed to, but you can also, uh, and I have because of big purchases we've made mm -hmm, in the past, mm -hmm. one quick phone call, and you've adjusted <laughs> yeah, your limits. Yeah, absolutely. It's that yeah, easy. Yeah. It's that easy. So I think that there, there's a there's a level of responsibility here on both ends because it is so easy and to 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 take money out and to spend money and and these food delivery apps. I mean, good grief! If it, if I pick up my phone right now, Dave, within the next five minutes, I can have uh, pizza at the studio <laughs> like that. Yeah, let's like do that. that. Let's and that's do that. What, <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes this so dangerous, too, because, for example, last night I was sitting around. My wife had uh, she was working late last night. So it's like, all right, well, I'm not going to make a big dinner. What am I going to make for supper tonight? And it was like, oh, pizza. Boom. Go on the app and <laughs> click this, click that. And the next thing I know, it's like literally 45, 50 seconds later and I can have a pizza delivered. And I, I, I changed my mind. I decided not to. I had food in the in the fridge. I was just too lazy to actually get up and make it. And then I ended up doing it. But but seriously, that that is where it's at right now, right? Like it is just so easy to be lazy, and it is just way too easy to spend money. The the amount of uh, self control and personal responsibility that you need to take nowadays mm -hmm. is, I think. Uh, you know, at a bit of a different level than when it, you had to rely on money in your pocket. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. You had your your tweet there uh, from James who said, I don't carry much cash anymore. Back in the day, you needed cash if you wanted to 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 exist, right? If you want to mm -hmm, buy things mm -hmm. and you wanted something delivered, it was cash <laughs> on delivery. Yeah. Now it's cash on ordering, cash on app. 
it's easy to spend that money. As we uh, talked about uh, currency on the show yesterday, I actually pulled out my wallet and started pulling out my cash to look for a $10 bill to see if I had one because it's my favorite bill. And uh, yeah, I think people were a little bit stunned by how much cash came out of my wallet because I'm still a bit of a cash operation over here. Me too. My, Me too. The, the, the one tip that I would offer here to individuals, especially when it comes to utilizing the apps, this is a huge pain in the ass, but you... Oh, I shouldn't have said that word on the air. This is a huge pain in the butt, but I, uh, but I definitely. Oh man, I'm rattled. I'm gonna get in trouble for that. Um, <laughs> but I definitely recommend that you set your app so that every time you make a purchase, you have to put your credit card info back in, even even if it's just the number and the um, and the expiry date. That alone yeah. will create that little bit of a stopgap for you before you end up, but before you end up hitting purchase, it at least gives you that one extra second to think. Ooh, do I really want this? Yeah, I know. I would agree. I mean, just is that extra little bit of time for second thought, and really, you know, it's right across the board. I mean, think about how easy it is to order things off of Amazon, right? Like, if your card information is saved in these uh, in these apps, two taps. It's like the press of about four yeah. buttons. Yeah, and, and that's it. Four taps and you're done. Something's at your house, you know, maybe even same day. Uh, and who knows how much money you've spent. So, yeah, I know a lot of people um, that, that, that know someone who, who has trouble with spending and who is that that, that sort of compulsive shopper and, and can't say no to a great offer or, you know, and, and buy this and, uh, you know, you get all this. And that's not all. You know, if you order within the next 20 minutes, we'll throw this in too. Oh, I've got to buy that. <laughs> yeah. I need a pair of Ginsu <laughs> knives that can chop through my, my running shoes at 12 o'clock at night. So, yeah, if you want the same day delivery, order in the next 10 minutes. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm feeling yeah. the pressure. Oh, boy. <laughs> right? I have to have those now. I, I can't wait another day to have those Ginsu knives, Dave. Mike, thank you for this. You should vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give a phone call one 866 509-4545-1866-509-4545. Why aren't you calling? You should be calling during the commercial break. Watch the commercials, but also call in and share your take. 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Mike. He has the national weather updates. Thanks very much, Dave. It is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Now, there's a theme in many, many parts of the country, basically from about Saskatchewan east, and that is going to be wind chill factor, all right? So uh, buckle up here. St. John's, Newfoundland, about five centimeters of snow today. The highs plus two, the wind chill there minus 12. So not too crazy there. And then we move into Halifax. Halifax got some flurries, then it makes a sun and cloud. The temperature is minus 12. The wind chill, minus 25 this afternoon. Coming to Montreal next, mainly sunny. The temperature, minus 26. The wind chill this morning, minus 30. This afternoon, minus 40. And frostbite can happen in minutes, so be careful there. Let's go to the nation's capital, Ottawa. Mainly sunny, the high, minus 25. The wind chill there, minus 43. Maybe the Rideau Canal will finally freeze over and they can open it up for skating. Because they haven't even done that yet. Let's go to Toronto next. Mainly sunny, the high is minus 13. The wind chill, minus 30 this morning, minus 23 this afternoon. Let's go to Thunder Bay, a mix of sun and cloud. 
The high minus 19, the wind chill minus 40 this morning, minus 24 this afternoon. To Winnipeg, where it'll be cloudy with a high of minus 17, the wind chill minus 40 this morning, going up to minus 30 this afternoon. In Saskatoon, got a mix of sun and cloud. The high is minus 8, the wind chill minus 30, and then the wind chill this afternoon minus 13. And here's where things kind of get nicer. Let's go to Alberta, Calgary, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of 6 degrees today. Edmonton, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of plus 3. They've got minus 16 wind chill this morning. Yellowknife, light snow ending this morning, then mainly cloudy. The high minus 22, the wind chill near minus 34. Vancouver, cloudy with rain in the afternoon. The high is 9. And Victoria will be cloudy with a few showers through the midday and the high 9 degrees. And that is your chilly AMI National Weather Forecast from Environment Canada. Mm-hmm, Mike, that is for sure. Today was one of those days, five minutes into my walk into work, I thought to myself, you should have called an Uber. I think right around minus 30 is when it's <laughs> you should call an Uber and not walk in and uh, freeze your face. Mike, thank you for this. Okay, Dave. That is Mike Ross coming up next. Oh, it's news panel time. Michelle McQuig and Joey Gupta are standing by. We'll discuss the controversy brewing over Canada's first special representative for combating Islamophobia. Spoiler alert, racists don't like being called racist. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday. It's the first hour of the show. You know what that means. The weekly news panel assembles. Let's welcome into the show the panelists, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hey. And good morning, Michelle. Good morning, guys. All right, let's jump right into this first topic. Some controversy is brewing. Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia is apologizing after Quebec politicians called for her to step down. Amira Al-Gawabi has been criticized for past comments she made about Quebecers in a co-authored opinion piece about Bill 21. Al-Gawabi says she hears people's concerns. These are very difficult conversations, and I would like to say that I am extremely sorry for the way that my words have carried, how they have hurt the people of Quebec. Al-Gawabi says her conversation with Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette was constructive, but they do agree to disagree when it comes to Bill 21. Bit more context to offer here about the piece that Al-Gawabi co-authored in regards to Bill 21, that's the Quebec Religious Symbols Law. In referring to a public opinion poll where 88% of Quebecers who said they agreed with Bill 21 said they dislike Islamic people, she referred to those people as racists and said that created a racist basis for the law. Context matters in these conversations. Michelle, what strikes you about this topic? Uh, a lot, actually. This is one of those things that started bubbling under and you wondered if it was going to be a bit of a tempest in a teapot and then it actually really blew up. Uh, when you started having the provincial government of Quebec calling for her resignation, uh, the prime minister taking uh, undertaking a pretty full-throated defense of her and then all kinds of other groups weighing in from all sides of this equation. It, it, it clearly is one that sort of captured the zeitgeist a little bit 
more than I necessarily would have expected. Um, the comment she made essentially in that editorial that you referenced said, uh, it, it's worth saying that this was a co-authored piece and she was not the only one whose name was on this piece. Um, the, the, the comment was talking about the poll that their support for Bill 21 was driven by anti-Muslim sentiment. That's the specific comment that's riled people. And now you have people raising questions about whether she's impartial enough, whether she's already burned this bridge with Quebec and is now unable to to have any kind of meaningful interaction with provincial officials there, where there are some issues to be to be sorted through that would fall within her purview. Um, you've got atheist groups saying that you've got a re religious fundamentalist in here. Uh, meanwhile, you have people from the Muslim community saying she's the one for the job because she's got the lived experience. So it's, it's really... Uh, one that's bubbling under more than I thought it would, and that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. In fact, the criticism seems to be mounting. I think people thought the apology might have put this to bed, and that has not been the case. Uh, allow me to reiterate something I said before the break. Spoiler alert, racists don't like being called racist, and they don't like it when their racist law gets called racist. Joita, are you surprised at mm. all by the reaction uh, coming out of Quebec? No, not at all. I think this whole situation yeah. has come down very predictably. Um, the reaction in Quebec is certainly not surprising in the least. They did pass Bill uh, 21 with a lot of support and with the consensus amongst the different parties to enforce secularism and to try and suppress religious expression in the province. And there is a lot of defensiveness in Quebec when it comes to any sort of federal criticism. And that really gets amped up when you talk about Bill 21. There are, of course, a number of points of view that have been uh, brought to bear on this situation. And uh, the prime minister, people, the public in Quebec, politicians in Quebec, and Jagmeet Singh, a bunch of people have come down on one side or the other of this whole debate. But none of those reactions all really seem surprising. There's no one there who said anything that made me go, oh, wait a minute, that came out of left field. Um, I do... I do think, though, that her position, Al-Gawabi's position, is very nuanced and is worth delving into. She is in a difficult position. The article that she co-authored some years ago, she was in a very different position then, being an advocate and speaking on behalf of a community uh, and, and, and flagging on behalf of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network uh, instances of Islamophobia and intolerance. But she's now in a very different situation here where she does need to, and I will pick up on Michelle's excellent point, work with officials in the province of Quebec. And so when you consider that she's now in a very different situation, her apology is a way to try and mend those fences in recognition of the fact that she's wearing a very different hat right now. When you think about the situation in Quebec, in particular, though, um, it's a little more complicated than saying that racists don't like being called racists, because I think, especially when you consider the quiet revolution in Quebec and the fact that it resulted in the, in the separation of church and state, there was a, a tendency to remove from public life in Quebec, uh, starting with education and sort of broadening it out to other spheres of life in Quebec to remove the influence of the church and other religious institutions. Mm -hmm. And of course, what that's meant for um, the Quebec majority that has often had, dare I say it, an, a difficult relationship with visible minorities is a need to ask immigrants in particular to uh, 
to assimilate, to join the fold, uh, to embrace French. We saw that in the discussions around Bill 96, which was the language uh, bill that came up and said that if you're a new immigrant, you need to learn French within six months. I'm sure we, I know we talked about we that did. on this panel. Yeah, we did. And yeah. so, you know, so there's, these, there's this whole complicated undercurrent when we talk about uh, language rights and, and cultural expressions and religious expression in Quebec that I think makes the situation that much more complicated and nuanced. And maybe I would, I would, uh, encourage us to think a little bit beyond the fact that it's just a question of racists taking umbrage with the fact that they might be called out as racists. Nah, no, it's not that complicated. The Quebec passed a secularism law, and as they read the law out in the legislature, they did it under a big old cross, a big old crucifix hanging in that legislature. People will say it's complicated for the sake of defending themselves. Bill 21, from its outset, was a racist law meant to target religious minorities, specifically to target uh, people of the Islamic faith. It was passed and utilizing the notwithstanding clause so it couldn't be challenged under a human rights law. They know what this is and they know what they're doing. They're trying to distract from the really important work that Amir al-Gawabi is being tasked with doing. And it really strikes me as how complex the diplomacy in her job is going to be when the Overton window has been shifted so far. Michelle, you commented in your opening remarks about how complex the way she's been perceived is going to affect the way that she's doing her work. Uh, how do you think she can actually go ahead about managing this diplomacy when people are pretty entrenched in their views? I'm honestly not sure she can at this point. Uh, I, I, if she does, then, then he, extreme hats off to her uh, negotiating skills and her diplomatic instincts. Uh, but I think, as you said, this is this is going to be tricky terrain to navigate. Uh, she she has lost some fundamental trust. One could argue she never had it to begin with, depending on what side of this issue you take. And honestly, I, I would argue that the fact that you and Joita have such differing positions on this that would both find a lot of popular support speaks to the complexity of this issue and 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 the the thicket that she's going to have to navigate through all this. Uh, working with the province is going to be a real challenge. And we talked about that. We touched on it last week. This administration is going to be in place for the next three years. Uh, the election was just held. The uh, CAQ is absolutely not going anywhere. I don't know if she's able to have these conversations. I, that said, I don't necessarily know if those conversations would have been possible no matter who was in the position because she is a federal appointee. And part of this whole stew is a deep-seated distrust of federalism in Quebec specifically. So uh, one could argue that perhaps these conversations were doomed from the outset, but I think the, the hill is particularly steep for Amira Gal excuse me, for Amira al it, it It certainly is complicated by the fact that she is uh, a Muslim woman who wears a hijab and Bill 21 says people who wear a hijab shouldn't be able to have a job in public life, right? So yeah. it runs right in the face of what Bill 21 is all about. Juita, how does that speak to the complexity of the job that Amir al-Gawabi has in front of her? Um, there are layers to this. I mean, for one thing, she's not a, a, a cabinet appointee or a minister. So that in and of, of itself can be a challenge in this situation because she doesn't really have, as far as I know, the ability to make laws or uh, you know, really impact any legislative change of any kind. She is in an advisory capacity um, and is, is someone who will be tasked with trying to bridge the gap in public conversation. And, and that's why I think that trying to understand some of the nuances in Quebec are really important because it is an issue that has been very divisive in the province of Quebec, certainly, but also made waves across the country. And really, it does seem like there's no way that these two very opposing sides can meet in the middle. So she does have a difficult job ahead of her. But 
part of what she needs to do is have the skill sets to be able to negotiate a way to have a conversation about this in Quebec, but certainly in other places across the country. And Quebec is a is a good example and a familiar example, but these conversations have come up in other contexts and other places and at other times. Um, think Israel-Palestine, think about India and Pakistan. And there, there are a plethora of reasons why these conflicts are often very difficult to resolve. So I'm not going to say that she's going to have an easy road ahead of her, but she's certainly someone who at least the prime minister believed was well suited to the job. Um, I also do feel that maybe she's getting a little more blowback than she would have otherwise had she been anyone other than a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. I think she's having to strain and struggle a little, a little bit more to establish herself uh, as credible and unbiased in this situation. But, you know, the, the fact remains, this is a complicated situation. It's not going to uh, we're not going to see a happy resolution anytime soon. But the fact that she's even in a very public, very visible role where she can address these issues is a very is very significant. And if she is empowered to try and facilitate some of those public conversations. And I think these public conversations are also happening in the aftermath of the Quebec mosque shooting that uh, we just celebrated the sixth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had the sixth anniversary of that. There was a family in London, uh, Ontario, that was attacked in what was also believed to be um, a, a hate crime directed towards a Muslim family. So you, you also have to recognize that Islamophobia is kills people. And so she's got this, uh, it's very urgent and imperative that these conversations are dealt with. And she clearly has the confidence of the prime minister, at least, to try and mediate and mitigate some of those conversations and conflicts. But whether she'll actually achieve something, that remains to be seen. Joita, staying with you before I give Joita last word, doesn't the way in which this has played out in the news cycle this week scream the importance of the role that Amir Al-Gawabi is picking up? Yeah, no, absolutely. It is. It does. It does speak to how important the role is. And, you know, it, it, just for context, there is a special advisor on anti-Semitism as well. So I, I'm a little skeptical about whether special advisors can actually accomplish all that much. <laughs> Uh, because it is an advisory advisory role. And of course, we know, for example, you could have had a, a special advisor on disability issues, but they, that person may not have had the same impact as Carla Qualtrough, who was actually a cabinet minister and managed to push through, through legislation for good or ill. You know, people may not be happy with how quickly that the Accessible Canada Act panned out, but we did get legislation out of it. But I think she, it's an important first step to appoint her. And uh, perhaps some would argue and even uh, some would argue it's a long overdue step to appoint her. So, yeah, we'll see. Michelle, similar question to you ahead of your closing thoughts. Doesn't the way in which this is played out in the news this week scream about the importance of the role? Yeah, I think so. It shows that because now you're seeing various faces of, of the issue playing out in, in plain sight. So it, it's actually really easy to to get a sample of the, the kind of opinions and the spectrum of of. <laughs> challenges that she's going to have to deal with as she takes on this role and having that play out in the public forum is, is really pretty telling. Um, I Joey took the words right out of my head though. I think there is a whole separate conversation to be had about special advisors and whether those are the best way to, to tackle issues like this. Um, we've even seen cases where full-on commissioners don't necessarily have a lot of power to enact change. Uh, so you, you, you do wonder about that, but it does speak to where the government's priorities lie and where they have 
identified some issues of, of focus or interest. So I think in that sense, it does speak to where the government stands on this, but it also runs the risk, uh, to quote a Globe and Mail headline from the other day, of, of being hired to preach to the converted. So I think uh, that the bridge building component from the, from the get-go is going to be her biggest challenge here. Michelle Juita, thank you for your thoughts on this one. Coming up next, the Ontario Liberal Party is trying to court Green Party leader Mike Schreiner to join their ranks. We'll contemplate political leaders switching parties. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's jump into our next topic. A group of Ontario Liberals, including former Cabinet Ministers Deb Matthews and Liz Sandals, have released a letter urging Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner to join the party and run for leadership. Schreiner released a response saying he'll take his time to think about it. He has no intention or ambition to lead any other party than the Greens, but first wants to get thoughts from his Guelph constituents, his family, friends, and colleagues. This has me thinking about the notion of political leaders switching parties. You sometimes see it going from a provincial to a federal level, maybe making some switcheroos. I'm having trouble racking my brain to think about a leader jumping ship inside their own province. Joita, what to you, what does this say about the state of the Ontario Liberal Party? Well, it says that they're desperate. Um, as you know, they lost party status two elections ago in Ontario, failed to regain party status in the most recent election here in Ontario, and they are now um, in third position. And so it's uh, it's it's uh, it's clearly a, an indication that either they don't feel that they have somebody uh, within the Liberal Party that. Um, they feel would be a suitable and charismatic leader who can revitalize the Liberal Party. And they're clearly looking to someone who can bring some uh, fresh blood or a fresh point of view to the table. Um, but what's interesting is that while some members of the Liberal Party are quite excited about this letter, and of course, uh, some, you know, Liz Sandals, Deb Dave Matthews, these are big prominent mm -hmm. names in the party. Mm -hmm. But then at of the, the same old time, guard. We've got the old guard, but at the same time, we've got a lot of people who are very insulted by the notion that you yeah. need to go to Mike Schreiner of all people and bring people and bring him in as a party leader or suggest that he he run for party leader. So already you can see that this decision is causing a rupture of fractures within the Liberal Party. And what if he if, what you know Mike Schreiner says he's going to think about it? What if he refuses? That just again undermines the Liberal Party in a very significant way because it a it makes them look ridiculous. And B, it just opens up a conversation about perhaps even merging the Green Party with the Liberal Party, ah, which is not yeah. something they might want to do. It's one thing to you know try and poach someone's leader, and God knows the Liberals have done that before. And think you know Bob Ray, who is the with the uh, Ontario NDP, and then went over to the Liberals. That's not all mm -hmm, that unusual. Mm -hmm. but or, 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 Jean, or, just... Jean, or Jean Charest, after being the leader of the yes. federal PCs, becoming yeah. the uh, leader in Quebec for the Liberal Party. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's just the, it just, it 
to quote John Ibbotson, who also writes for the Golden Mail, it's clearly just a show of desperation on the part of the Liberal Party. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, too. It really it really says, hey, here's this party that was in power for almost 15 years that never quite thought about a second succession after Kathleen Wynne. And it seems like they're really still struggling to attract stars. Because to, to my mind, I thought after the most recent provincial election, there might have been some poaching from federal ranks that maybe someone who realized they weren't going to take uh, Christian Freeland's job, who seems to be the heir apparent to Justin Trudeau, that someone would have said, ah, you know what, this could be an opportunity for me to helm the Ontario Liberal Party. But here we are, almost a year from that provincial election, and they're still just kind of out here in the wilderness wandering around, throwing Hail Mary. To, to a politician, by the way, who is a great campaigner. Mike Streiner is mm. an awesome campaigner. People really seem to like the guy and connect to the guy. But, Michelle, I'll, I'll go with what uh, Joita said about uh, John Ibison. Yeah, it seems like a little bit of desperation over here. Yeah, I want to back the bus up even a little bit further. It's not just that they be, were reduced to third-party status in last year's election. They've been there since 2018. They fell, they fell from forming government to not even having official party status. Mm -hmm. So this has been now five years of this situation. They they appointed a leader from the old guard, the same ranks that have now put out this letter. We don't necessarily know how Stephen Del Duca felt about this letter, but he definitely was part of that same cabinet slate that included the likes of Dead Matthews and Liz Sandals and some of those older guard. I'll, I'll, very, very prominent officials under Kathleen Wynne. Uh, so that same kind of banner was being carried for the last election. It went about as well as the 2018 one, except worse because Stephen Del Duca didn't even win his own riding, and now he's the mayor municipally. Um, yeah. I, I, Dave, I feel like we do, we can't have this conversation without sort of focusing on some of what you said about Mike Schreiner. He would undoubtedly be a real get for any party, he's been tremendously successful in Ontario, regardless of what you think of his pol of his politics. He, the Green Party was a real, real, real backwater uh, when he took over the leadership. He slowly and patiently made some inroads. He became the first elected Green MPP in this province. He is extremely well regarded on all fronts. He has a great reputation. So there's no question I could see why any party would be interested in approaching him. I'm absolutely baffled by why the Liberals would want to do this so publicly. <laughs> Uh, why they would want to be airing this dirty laundry in light of the, the fracture that has now become really evident because Joey is absolutely right. Some of that same old guard is just miffed beyond expression that they would take this to the public and have this whole drama play out so publicly and put Mike Schreiner on the spot, quite frankly. Um, the initial reaction was a hard no, and then it was more of an I'll think about it, and I feel like that might be a spot of diplomacy on his part mm. because he is so tightly affiliated with the Green Party. That is just that is his brand, and right. this would be a difficult move to pull off if it were to go ahead. And certainly it would not in any way make all parties happy. And I don't, even though the green tent can be a big one and so can the liberals, I don't know if, I don't necessarily believe that they're a great fit for a merger. So this whole move is kind of perplexing to me. Michelle, the public side of this is so interesting, right? Because you might think of this deal being made with some large glasses of whiskey and some cigar smoke in a dark <laughs> totally, lounge in, yeah. in leather chairs somewhere, but not via an open well, you letter. You your ties and yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like, you know, you're cutting this deal behind closed doors. To have it be so public fascinates me. Uh, you both got into this a bit in terms of a cost-benefit analysis of bringing in another party leader to run and become 
become your party's leader. Certainly the cost, you both mentioned the possibility of a fracture there. I also wonder how voters might respond to that saying, mm -hmm. well, these aren't yeah. really your politics. Like what is your authenticity in this role? Now, the benefit is what I identified and Michelle, you echoed it. Mike Schreiner is just an excellent, excellent politician. And maybe that's right. what they're thinking. Is this someone who can actually rebuild the ranks of our party? But Juita, as you dive a bit deeper into the cost benefit analysis, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, we've sort of already touched on it. I said with any new leader, especially someone of Mike Schreiner's caliber, there's always a, a belief that he can revitalize the party, uh, bring fresh ideas to the table, uh, lots of conversations happening about the environment. So someone who would, in some respects, be a very good fit. And of course, we've already, I think, in some detail talked about some of the downsides with a potential merger of the party, a, a very public split. So I'm not going to revisit that. But I think it's worth thinking about um, the fact that Mike Schreiner is as effective in pushing the platforms of the Greens because there's a whole party supporting him. And Mike Schreiner might be an amazing leader. He may even, let's, you know, let's engage in a thought experiment. He may even be a very good addition to the liberal team, but he is still just one person. Mm. Yeah. And when you think about who traditionally votes liberals, I hope I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this, <laughs> and also who uh, typically fundraises for the liberals, who belongs to the party uh, infrastructure. It's not a bunch of environmentalists. I'm not counting them out as liberals, but you generally see a lot of people who are involved with development, with real estate, uh, you know, belonging to the liberal party. And they're not necessarily the people who will uh, be front and center and embracing Mike Schreiner as a leader. So, you know, regardless of his personal charisma or his um, his ability to get the job done or to get conversations going about the environment, I suspect one of the reasons he might be hesitating, and I am speculating, so I will couch this as speculation, is I think he might really be wondering about whether he would actually be able to promote uh, environmentalism in the same way mm. and as effectively within the Liberal Party as it stands right now. Juita, don't worry. If anybody's getting in trouble during the first hour of the show today, it's me. I'm the one who's getting a tongue <laughs> wagging when uh, this thing whole wraps up. Uh, Michelle, as you dive a bit deeper into the cost-benefit analysis side of this, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I. the branding is a big one. Uh, I think Joita raises a lot of really great points and it, I, it I circles back somewhat to what I was talking about before, but Mike Schreiner's own identification with the Green Party. He is essentially the Green Party in Ontario. And he, as he's developed his skills as a campaigner and a debater, both of which he's gotten very, very good at, he has also maintained an admirable ability to maintain his focus. We, you, you do know at all times what he stands for on the environment, that he always finds a way to circle it back to the Green Party's core identity. That is something I feel the Liberal Party is lacking, and that sort of reflects potentially in this outreach as they're trying to figure out who they're going to court, who they even want to attract in terms of both candidates and voters. Uh, so I think they're trying to figure that out. And you raised some interesting points about the the perils or, or benefits of switching leaders uh, between parties. But I think in all those cases, we've talked about people making the leap from federal to provincial or vice versa. Doing it within a province is, I think, a trickier deal. Uh, different parties bearing the same name in different jurisdictions can have very different looks and feels and even political bents. Uh, for instance, the BC Liberal Party, which now has finally renamed itself to reflect its ideology a little better, but they were called liberals, even though they would ha probably have been called conservatives anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So 
those those kind of leaps, while they're interesting and raise some questions, at least make a little bit more sense. I think that would be a bit harder to pull off provincially if you're just sticking within the Ontario ranks. Oh, what did they settle on? BC United? Was that the one they settled on in the end? I'm trying to remember it. It's annoying was, me that I can't remember. I, I it it was, is something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was BC like, United. Something like that. The BC United But it speaks party. to how, how, how little a name can actually mean when you're changing mm-hmm. context, right? Yeah. But within a province where those party lineages and histories are a lot more entrenched, uh, it's a trickier it's a trickier move, I'd say. L- let's wrap up here. I'm making you Mike Schreiner, Joita. I've, I've waved the wand. You're now Mike Schreiner. What would you do? Well, I mean, if I had to join the Liberal Party, I'd have joined the Liberal Party, so I'd probably <laughs> stay put where I am. <laughs> uh, Michelle, same question to you. You're Mike Schreiner. What would you do? Yeah, if my political career—excuse me, if my political career is not broken, I'm not going to fix it. I'm going to stay put too. I'll, I'll I'll put it this way: the fact that they're courting me and that I still have to run for leadership, therefore making it not a slam dunk, means I'm absolutely not doing it. I would <laughs> right? I would also say this: if I'm Mike Schreiner, I'm waiting patiently to figure out what's going on with the federal Green Party because whatever scheme they have here with co-leadership and Elizabeth May coming back, I I don't know how much longer that's going to hold itself up and hold itself together. If I'm Mike Schreiner, I'm willing to make a jump to federal and doing any kind of jumping around inside the province doesn't necessarily work for me. Okay, that's... True, and if I could just add, would you really want to walk into this quagmire and the infighting that's already in public display? Like, honestly? No, pass, hard pass. Hard pass. Okay, that's enough Ontario politics uh, for the show, for our national TV talk show. Coming up next, we go south of the border, where the American Food and Drug Administration is looking to regulate cannabis-infused health products, particularly around CBD. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic to roll up for you. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is asking Congress for permission to regulate CBD products. In case you don't know, CBD is a non-psychedelic compound found in cannabis. It's often cited as an effective anti-inflammatory and sleep aid without necessarily too much scientific research. Health Canada says CBD is already under strict regulations. The packaging must include health warnings and they are prohibited from making unproven health or cosmetic claims. Other than a few natural health and veterinary products, all health products containing cannabis or CBD fall under the Food and Drugs Act in Canada and undergo extensive testing. Nonetheless, this is a really interesting story. Joita, what did you want to explore in this conversation? Honestly, I, I was surprised that uh, it was even um, that it that 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 there wasn't or there was there were still calls for greater regulation. I had I admit, I admit that I. Uh, haven't been reading the fine print, but it's there's a bewildering array of products out there now, which we didn't see in the market even four or five years ago, lotions and potions and oils and all these supposed benefits of using CBD. And I don't know whether the the horse has left the barn and it might be very difficult to come back and revisit the, you know, the efficacy of some of those claims, the effectiveness of some of those claims to have conversations and research about any potential side effects or downsides, um, or if it's too little too late, because uh, there's generally a consensus that these products have an array of health benefits and advantages, and no one's really having a conversation about any potential downsides. So, mm. 
it was just one of those stories that almost took me by surprise because I hadn't expected to read it. So, Juita, I was stunned too as the article from the CBC that you sent over as it went on had Canadian researchers sounding the alarm despite mm-hmm. the Health Canada mm-hmm. regulations that already exist. You can only really buy a CBD product from a cannabis store. That, that's pretty much the only place you can do it inside Canada. However, in the U.S., where cannabis remains a federally illegal drug, you can basically buy all kinds of CBD products from online retailers completely Mm -hmm. legally. So the distinction I want to keep striking here is there is a big difference between the U.S. and Canada, but I listen to a lot of American podcasts, and so many of them have advertisers advertising CBD stuff with huge benefits, this, this, that, this other. Michelle, were you a bit surprised that Canadian researchers and Canadian advocates are still sounding the alarm on CBD? I was a bit uh, because I I, I will note that when legalization rolled out here, there was a a sort of phased in approach and a lot of the kinds of products we're discussing now were not available within the first year of legalization. So I, I kind of assumed, I think, that there was some more of regulatory action going on there. And it took that extra time for, you know, edibles and beverages and topicals and all those things and tinctures to, to, to become Available. Yeah, it took a long time. Mm -hmm. It took a long time. I was very Yeah, it did. And and there were all kinds of issues when it happened. Anyway, so yes, I was a bit surprised by that. But, you know, the article does draw the the distinction that you made that I think is a really important one, that the American situation is much, much more of a Wild West than we have here. Mm -hmm. You still have individual states setting their own laws, so there's no federal policy guiding this the way there is here. Uh, the very fact that it is legal means that there is some more regulatory action in place, I would think. And I, I do see an advantage to legalization in that now, without the, the fear of criminality hanging over the proceedings, it's easier to get on with that kind of research and do some of that studying to see what the what the effects and the downsides really are. Um, but I would agree. I think it was an interesting one that the, the, the downsides are not necessarily as well understood as as many people would like them to be. Yeah, as you pointed out, Michelle, for so many years, a lot of research was was not doable because of the illicit nature of cannabis in the U.S. and Canada. So there's just not... There's not as much data as some researchers would like, which I think is totally reasonable. Joita, one of the all-time Dave Brown-Joita disagreements on our news panel happened way back in 2018 about regulation around alternative medicine. I really feel like this is another example of that, right? Where people will very offhand remark and say, oh, CBD, great sleep aid, but without necessarily Mm -hmm. the real evidence to back that up. And, And I think, yeah, that's a huge problem. Yeah, I'm surprised you remember anything going back to 2089. If you ask right? me, it's, it's, all the, it's, all the, it's all the CBD that I consume. It's good for the brain. <laughs> it's, it's memory aid. Come on, guys. Yeah, no, and that's just one of the many sort of spurious claims they make about CBD. Um, and I think it, it falls in this is general embrace of alternative medicines and traditional medicines. And people are, are very happy to be taking these products. But there's also a huge cannabis industry. If you, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's been legalized, if you walk down, Young Street in Toronto, which is a major thoroughfare. I mean, you can find, I don't want to say a single cannabis store in a in a particular block. I would say often at least, you know, you can find several in downtown yeah. Toronto. Oh, yeah. It's a, such yeah. a high concentration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like and there's so like there three, there's pushing. like three like a block from this office. Uh, yes, exactly. And so there's oh there there is a lot of push from the industry to also create new products and to create demand for these new products. And I think researchers are right to sound the alarm and say that, you know, we haven't done the research. We don't know what the downsides are. You're putting a, a you're putting warnings or you're putting, uh, you know, labels on packaging, which is a good thing. 
But honestly, how many people actually read those things? And I think there needs to be more research done, which hasn't up to this point been possible. So the issue here isn't so much, you know, should there be more regulation in Canada? I think we're doing as much as we can at the moment. But I think the issue really is that we do need more research. Um, and there can be a bit of a, a, a bit of pushback from industry around that, especially because there is a large amount of money to be made by selling CBD products and selling the claim that this is one of those uh, cure-alls for all kinds of things from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from pain management to sleep medication. Uh, Michelle, it feels like we're oftentimes circling around this anecdotal science versus research-based science conversation. It really feels like this is an extension of that, that, that we're so oftentimes now having these conversations about the regulation of what can be sold or given to people, especially under the guise of health and wellness. Doesn't this feel like a bit of an extension of that? I would say so, yeah, and it's it's reminiscent of any kind of conversations that take place involving drugs and medication of any kind. I'm, it, it reminds me a bit of the conversation around psychedelics, where you have all kinds of anecdotal evidence of, of all kinds of things, uh, some of which are easier to believe than others. But the fact is that some very promising research in, in a lot of these fields got, would get started up and then shut down again when the mm-hmm. public tide around these conversation turns. I feel like cannabis has kind of been lumped in in the same conversation and the fact that we have moved that ball further down the court, but I think bodes better for the next phase of research that needs to take place, but there's no question that it does need to take place. I, I wanted to sort of caution against falling into the trap of, of saying that there probably are all kinds of unsuspected downsides and potential harms. There there might be. That's the question we're trying to resolve is mm-hmm. are there or aren't they? I would be very hesitant to come down very hard on either side of saying it's, something is definitely one way or the other in this case. Yeah, I do wonder how this conversation is going to play into what's going to be the next chapter in drug decriminalization and legalization in Canada, mm-hmm. which is cybacillin. Uh, the the compounds found in mushrooms that some folks say have incredible medical benefits, but again with a lack of with a lack of research, I I think this is probably this ends up being an interesting template to say okay if this was the concern around cannabis what can we do as researchers and a society as we enter that next chapter because there is an inevitability to that one mm-hmm. and let's see if we can actually do that one with, with perhaps a little bit more of a thorough approach before we open up a cybacillin store on every second block on young street uh, joita <laughs> i, I want to give you the last thought on this one do you think at this point it's politically possible to even like pull back a smidge on cannabis now that it's become so commonplace inside the canadian psyche and economy it seems like it may not be possible to pull back all that much, certainly as more research comes out, if there is evidence to show that there are downsides or side effects, you may see greater restrictions on the sale of CBD products, but I don't ever see us really going back to a place where they would be outright banned. Um, there is a there is a fairly powerful industry lobby pushing for these products, and I think it's something that is so widespread culturally and so widely adopted by people that I think it's it's going to be very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. If I can share an anecdotal story, just as we're wrapping up here, guys, um, one of my friends works in the marketing field and he and I will go for beers every couple of weeks and talk about the work that he's doing. And some of the files that he's working on now are cannabis files. And it's been made very difficult for the cannabis industry to actually advertise their products uh, to the general public because everything needs to be age gated. There needs to be almost zero possibility mm. of your product's advertisement being seen by somebody who's below the age of 19 or 18, depending on the province. And it's become one of the great Rubik's cubes in advertising is how do we make ourselves stand out in this huge morass 
a volume of products. So I do find that it's interesting that there are people on one side really pushing here saying, we need more regulations. And there's an entire other industry saying, gosh, how do we crack this code? What's the way that we do it? So I find these are there's some really interesting next level conversations going on around cannabis right now that maybe aren't always being uh, reflected from institutions. But Joita, thank you for bringing this topic to us. It's a really interesting one. Michelle, I'm going to say goodbye to you first, simply to say have a nice weekend, and we'll talk to you on Monday morning. Take care, Dave. Have a good weekend, everyone. Joita, just before I say goodbye to you, you're the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. A new episode dropped yesterday afternoon. What should people expect when they go download the episode? Danielle Campo-McLeod was my guest. She's a well-known and recognized Canadian Paralympic swimmer and now a social worker and the mom of several, five beautiful kids. She uh, recently wrote a memoir. It's called... um, Uh, which talks about her journey. Uh, And so you can go and check out my conversation with Danielle about her memoir. Okay, I just drew a blank about the name of the book. Maybe I should look into some of the CBD. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joita, thank you for this. You're doing excellent work on The Pulse. Thank you. That is Joita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by to talk about sports. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.